Welcome to Protoss, a podcast series for those who are motivated to explore and understand more about the kingdom. Here are your hosts, Wayne and Steve. But it's also great that we've started here in Australia the AFL footy season. And, and this weekend, your team versus my team. So there might be a bit of friction today. Yes, that is tomorrow. And we're recording today, so we don't have to have that friction. Okay. Is that right? We'll put is that, that why we're doing it today? Yeah, I'm sure there'll be lots of SMSs <laughs> flying between us tomorrow. Or, or, or deadly <laughs> silence. Well, I, I normally respond to your SMSs with deadly silence during the match. <laughs> so true. <laughs> Once again, I'm really enjoying that we're continuing this discussion on kingdom leadership. And last time we made the point in our podcast that kingdom leaders themselves have to enter the kingdom, Absolutely. which means leading by example. Yeah, I mean, they entered the kingdom because they should enter the kingdom because they're Christians, but as leaders, issue arises, well, what example are we setting? Spot on. The natural progression from that podcast is if kingdom leaders are themselves to enter the kingdom, to be truly leaders, they should be inspiring and helping others to enter the kingdom. Now, what does scripture say about that, Wayne? A pivotal scripture for both the last podcast and this one would be something Jesus said in Matthew 23 to the Pharisees. We read this stuff that Jesus said to the Pharisees, isn't it? As leaders, we can go, oh, yeah, those horrible Pharisees. But these things are written for our instruction and for our reflection and for, for us to judge ourselves on. And I think a lot of the things Jesus said to the Pharisees are really important for all church leaders to consider themselves. One of the things he said to them that's really important on this issue He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Ouch. (laughs) That's a burn. (laughs) He didn't have a lot of good things to say about their practices. They're stopping themselves going, so that's your problem. But if they're actually getting in the ways of others, you've really got a burden on your shoulders. Yeah, so that's the next step, really, when we think about entering the kingdom. Are we doing it ourselves? But but the next thing for kingdom leaders is what sort of an environment am I creating or participating in for others? Is it helping people with these keys to the kingdom or is it actually preventing them? And it's interesting to note the tense of what Jesus says, that those people they were leading were already entering and they were actually stopping them entering further by their religious practices, by their example, by the, the rules and regulations and, and culture and systems that they had in place. That's a very good pickup because religious systems can have a way of introducing a lot of unnecessary rules and steps and practices that actually aren't reflected in Scripture. Yeah. And so Christians all over the world who have a relationship with Jesus in their private time, their personal world, and they're entering through prayer and faith, go to church And what happens there actually stops that process. Mm. And that is a terrible thing to think about. Unfortunately, this is something that happens and something we need to examine ourselves on. It's no excuse to say, well, this is part of our culture, it's part of our system, it's part of our denomination. We have individual decisions to make on it. How do we identify those things that might be hindering us? It's the same thing we ask others and we we look for in others that we've looked for in ourselves. Do we have a prayer life? What's our prayer life like? Is it honest? Is it open? Is it private? Fundamentally, how's our journey of faith? Unfortunately, you see the progress of churches who start in faith and end up in pragmatism, not encouraging people's personal life of faith, but rather the following of systems and following of procedures and a focus on other things rather than faith. It's also this issue of humility. Are we teaching and training and examining people to be humble? Are we teaching them to judge? That's a big one, as we talked about last podcast. And that can be soft as well, because it can be that I'm not from the pulpit teaching you specifically to judge, but I can be evidencing that by excluding certain people or showing a position of others, which says you're the leader of this church and 
you're showing that position comes with judgment. Absolutely. It's not questioned. It comes from a misunderstanding of Scripture, and we've covered this at several points in our podcast. It's even really questioned that churches should be judgmental. The meaning of judge is to have an expression opinion about. When I'm interacting with people, I shouldn't have a set opinion about them. I should be open-minded, which is the very thing that churches commented on that they're not. Our leaders modelling humility are people more humble as a result of our leadership. One way to help us to break our own trait of judgment can be to be more observational and more questioning. Yeah. I observe this and ask a question about it. Don't have a predetermined opinion. That is really the most practical outworking of an understanding of judgment in the New Testament. The word to judge is krino, which means it's what we can do to ourselves, have an opinion. Then there's diacrino, which means discernment, which is an internal decision-making process. It's something we keep within ourselves. And there's anachrono, which is the judgment we should have with others. And that word actually means to ask questions. Okay. <laughs> it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? It certainly does. There's a lot to be learned there yeah. alone. It's easy to get into a judgment place. And when we do, have we predetermined what we think the circumstances yeah. are? Or is there an observation there that we need to learn more about? Absolutely. So it's, it's, it's your transition. If you're feeling like we've got an opinion about a person or a situation, just switch and ask questions. Be inquisitive. Be curious about their journey and their life and so on. Thank you, Wayne. Let's look specifically at some of the criticisms that Jesus had of the Pharisees and what we can learn from those. Jesus taught a lot about entering the kingdom, and when he encountered the Pharisees, they were doing the opposite. Some key things really highlight some of these practices. One of them is in Matthew 23, 23, when he's talking about tithing. And he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe and mint and anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These you have ought to have done without leaving the others undone, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Now, in the Old Testament, of course, tithing was legislated. They should have been doing that. It seems like when it come time for synagogue, there was more of an issue of, well, how many seeds do you have again? So it was a very, very legalistic. And, and that that's to me suggests they were more worried about themselves and what they were getting out of it because they were getting their share of those tithes. This is where maybe the selfish ambition comes in a bit. The problem is, as a church leader with finances and giving, is that a focus on that can be self-serving. Now, I'm not saying this is a motivation of all church leaders. But church leaders that move from faith to pragmatism say, I need to meet a budget. Mm -hmm. And there's a sense of responsibility for themselves and for others and for the whole system and things just to keep going financially. An increasing focus on, hey, Lord, we trust in your provision to, hey, God, you're going to provide for these people. I'm going to get every blinking seed I can out of them, <laughs> you know, because we have an expansive vision. You know, and if you're a US tele evangelist, a bigger jet to buy. It's ironic tithing isn't part of the New Testament. It's Old Testament law, but if anything, we're called to be cheerful givers. And if we're doing that from a position of faith and from a spirit of being willing givers, we'll probably end up giving more than the 10% tithe anyway. We give everything. To me, that's the issue. Yes. Everything. What we earn, what we spend, what we give, whatever we do, we're led by the Holy Spirit. That's to me, that's the New Testament. Sometimes that's a lot more sacrifice than 10%. Other times it's not, to be honest. Very good point. It's just being led <laughs> by the Spirit. Whereas the Pharisees focusing on tithing was focusing on themselves. If they focused on justice, justice and mercy, and mercy and faith, and faith mm. they actually be focused on the temple goers, which is servant leadership. Yes, to be helping them out with the keys of the kingdom, making their lives better rather than making the temple more prosperous. Mm. Stephen Covey, who most people are probably aware of, he's got a famous quote. He says, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. As leaders, what are the main things? Jesus talks about them here, expressed in a different way in Corinthians. Paul said, faith, hope, and love. 
These are the main things mm. and love is the mainest of main things. Yeah. We've got a question, what is our focus? And I think, honestly, this sort of an attitude comes as a result of leaving a foundation of faith. And this is a foundation of faith in provision where we no longer look to God as our provider, but we look to people in the church as the provision. And so we're going to get as much through that channel, through our control, our authority, our power is going to drive that because we have a program, building, staff, whatever we want to look after. That may come through a genuine concern from others. To me, it's a deviation from a foundation of faith. Faith, hope and love are the majors, whereas quite often leaders can focus on the minors for a number of reasons because of pressure points. It can be financial reasons. It can be the need to control others even. That's right. Uh, It can even be for their own (laughs) self-esteem. Look what I've created. The adoration of others. That's right. So they can take that minor doctrine and make it much bigger because of whatever they believe is their special revelation, prophecy from others, or whatever it is that is most important to them. So I think that covers tithing rather well. But Jesus also had some other criticisms he brought towards the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Absolutely. Later on in Matthew 23, he starts off with the woe to you bit, which is pretty common there. He says, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Then he goes on and says, you're whitewashed tombs. You indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Some pretty full-on stuff there. It seems to me like his view of the religious leaders of the day is that they were just full of self-indulgence, hypocrisy, extortion, you name it, lawlessness. But on the outside, they probably had amazing, beautiful robes and garments, and they were being looked up to by the people of the era. There's a number of things that in, in more modern-day language we can consider here. Mm-hmm. You know, this is our integrity. Are we the same person when we appear before people as we are in private? That really is a reflection of how open we are with people. Are we prepared for people to see who we are? But there's a second organisational issue, which is called impression management. We don't let people know what's really going on and we make sure we give a good impression and say the right things and manage everything. So it appears like everything's going well. But people really not let on the inside of the challenges and difficulties, the inconsistencies and the problems. You've pretty well just described social media. (laughs) (laughs) And I think you've pretty much described uh, a pretty negative experience I've had about impression management as well Mm -hmm. in the sense of going, I just don't want to be a part of basically lies. To me, it really belittles people to say, we don't think you're adult enough to hear what's really going on. We don't think you're mature enough. We don't think you can cope with it. We just want to protect you from it. You're a little baby. And so we'll make a little world. That's the positive side of it. The negative side of it is we want to keep things appearing like everything's perfect and dandy. But the reality is real growth comes from understanding and facing difficulties. Mm. And real forgiveness comes that way as well. And real grace flows from that as well, from that openness and that vulnerability. Absolutely. And even the point of... We don't think you can handle the truth stuff that you just <laughs> you said. You can't handle the truth. Yeah, exactly. As part of a positive, well, you're just back to judgment. That's you're, right. You're making a judgment which is unfair. To me, it's very belittling. It's saying, hey, we think you're immature. That's what it's basically saying. It's this impression management. It's regarded as a positive in places. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's not for me, it isn't. Nice. Uh, I'd rather people be open and, and honest and we go on the journey together as fellow humans trying to navigate our way in sometimes difficult world. Exactly. Now, Matthew 23 then goes into a third and distinct separate <laughs> criticism of the Pharisees that we can learn from as well, Wayne. A little bit early in Matthew 23 and 14, it says, Woe to you, 
You make for a pretense, long prayers, therefore you will receive a greater condemnation. Imagine that, praying more and being condemned for it. Now, not many people make that link. That's amazing. That's, once again, a legalism thing. I'm yeah. being called to pray, so the more I do it will mean I'm going to have more favour, but no, it's exactly the opposite. Yeah, in their case, they were doing it in public. They were okay. promoting a version of their spirituality, which was actually not true. There's nothing wrong with long prayers necessarily. There's not very many long prayers ever recorded in the Bible, unfortunately. But it was the pretense they were making him under. The pretense was, hey, this is when this is my spiritual life. And they're doing it because either of their role expectation of their leadership position. But it wasn't truly who they are and they wanted to parade about it. In contrast, Jesus said when he taught us to pray, he says, go into your secret place, shut the door. And your father who's in secret will reward you. This is Matthew 6. And so when we look at these two things in contrast, we go, if I really want my prayers answered, I'm going to be praying them in private because I have this extra dimension as a leader that possibly I feel the need to be pretentious, in a sense, in these words. When you go into that private place to have that intimacy with God, you're probably going to be more struck with that humility of being in the presence of yeah. the, the creator of everything and you can have a genuine heartfelt conversation right. as opposed to when you're out in public doing your hour-long prayer or whatever it right. is, you're really doing that for everyone else who's watching and there's no connection you've got. No, there's no openness or honesty. And Hebrews 10 tells us we're drawn near to God with a pure heart. I mean, number one, it's the heart. Do you only really do it in private? I don't want everyone to know the gritty details. The Father already knows them, so me verbalising them is no shock. For me, to be honest, the prayers that get answered are my private prayers. And I know there's a lot of focus on prayer meetings, and, and there are prayer meetings in the New Testament, but they're more extraordinary things. There's nothing wrong with that either. There's nothing wrong with that. But there should be that corresponding focus on private prayer as well. It's the pretense word that we need to take note of. Is our long prayer, is it coming out of our relationship with God in integrity, or is it because others are there? And I've got to say, you know, early on in my journey, prayer meetings were like a competition. You go to prayer meetings, who's got the best prayer, the most passionate prayer, the loudest prayer? You feel that this is a full-on AFL match going on here in prayer. Not that it's the same uh, issue. When we look at the life of Jesus, he withdrew to himself. Only twice in his life he prayed with others. One was in the Garden of Gethsemane, others was in Mount Transfiguration. Well, Garden of Gethsemane, everyone fell asleep around him. Yeah, and, and he, he went away from them. It says when he came back, they were asleep. So he wasn't even with them at the prayer meeting. He said, <laughs> stay, watch with me. But he still wanted that intimacy with God. As a leader, this becomes a very important issue. And as a church leader, are we trying to foster and establish people's private prayer life or are we trying to get them to attend a prayer meeting? Now, I was consulting to a church at one point and we were looking at strategies and indicators and cultural surveys, going through a conversation with a senior pastor Got to a point and said, well, I had to ask him, what are you actually after as an outcome? Do you want people praying or do you want people at a prayer meeting? I thought it was a bit of a rhetorical question, but the answer was, I want people at a prayer meeting. Ah, that tells me a lot. You know, that feeling of shock you try to get over in a conversation with someone to continue on and just go, okay, I don't really, and your words become more deliberate yeah. <laughs> as you think through, what the hell is going on here? You wouldn't have expected that as an answer. Absolutely not. And going, okay. This is not a place I really want to be too connected to, to be honest. It suggests for that leader, he, she gains comfort in having a lot of people praying together, whereas yeah. the kingdom is rewarded with people praying yeah. in private. And your point was very valid about Jesus only praying in groups a couple of times, and both times he went away and prayed <laughs> privately and left left the groups. And stuff. So he was really, he took those public prayer meetings as an opportunity to teach us, well, this is the way you pray. 
There's also a fourth criticism <laughs> looking at Matthew 23. So there's even more we can learn from him absolutely taking it to the Pharisees. Yeah, he said in Matthew 23, 4, to the Pharisees, they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Mm. This is the do as I tell you, not do as I do bit. And the tendency in religious organisations for the rules just to multiply, the expectations to multiply upon people. It's amazing. There's traditions that come out that you can't even find any evidence of in Scripture. <laughs> Growing up with groups of people, I'd go over to people's houses at Easter. I wouldn't have said they were particularly religious or even church-going people, but they would only eat fish on Good Friday yes. and felt there was something biblical about that. And that's that probably the, one of the more... The fishmonger's religion was... <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. That's just a minor example of so many rituals that get mm. put into the process that really get in the way of people understanding what the kingdom is. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's that religion versus kingdom discussion, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And churches often put systems into place which says you must do this to be a part of our church. For example, small groups in church can be a positive experience for many people and have been, but some churches make small group membership a requirement before other things can happen. They've confused strategy and vision. Small groups should be a strategy to build relationships. The small group is not the goal. The relationships are the goal. And, so, and relationships can happen in other ways. And so these burdens are not just the religious practices, but they also can be systems and strategies that the church religiously follows and makes requirements and doesn't give opportunity for things to be done in different ways to achieve the real outcome that they should be seeking. Does that make sense? It makes sense. I've experienced that myself where it was frowned upon in a church I was at if you didn't attend a small group. And in fact, it went a step further that those who were the leaders of the small group program actually put you into small groups. They would name the group you would actually attend. Right. And I'd attend those and I'm sure they're lovely people, but it was just a terribly yeah. uncomfortable experience because... I just didn't gel with them. So it didn't actually foster increasing a relationship. No. I already knew them from church to say <laughs> hello and all the rest of it. There wasn't a lot of value added in that process. I remember something we were both a part of. We used to go away with a group of guys regularly, play golf. Absolutely. Most people didn't really like golf, but a group of guys from church and guys not at the church. And so we would connect, relate. We would have spiritual times even with the, the non-Christians there. And I remember at one point, one of the guys there got a phone call from the senior pastor saying, you can't be away this weekend. You need to be sitting in a chair at church. And you're going, there's a real problem with that because these are the rules. It doesn't matter what you're achieving by doing that. In fact, there was a better expression of church on the golf weekend than, than sitting in a service, in my opinion. Absolutely. So where layers of rules and rituals can be added in a religious environment, Kingdom leaders keep rules to a minimum, don't yeah, they? Yeah, absolutely. A great example of this was in Acts when the Council of Jerusalem met and going, well, do we want to make these Gentiles uh, get circumcised? What expectations should we have on all these Gentiles who are coming to faith? Because wrapped up in the Jewish religion and the heritage of the birth of the church was a Jewish tradition. And they decided, this is a great phrase that's in Acts 15, 28. It says, we decided to lay no greater burden than these necessary things. And so really, as a kingdom leader, we, we actively reduce burdens, mm. we make more freedom, more ways of doing things, more acceptance of differences, different approaches, rather than rules and regulations and strategies and systems which confine people into a certain way of operating. I'm sure he would have prayerfully considered this question about whether the Gentiles need to be circumcised or not. 
And what I really liked was the point he made that he was guided by the words, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. I have this phrase of the principle of minimum burden. If there's a decision to be made, what's the least burden? Religion tends to pile burden upon burden, as Jesus said to the Pharisees here when we looked at Matthew 23, 4, they bind heavy burdens. That's a great leadership trait, no matter what you're doing, whether Absolutely. it's kingdom or otherwise. I mean, streamline well, things and have the minimum burden means you're going to have a better outcome. Yeah. Listen to this burden. Jesus highlighted in Matthew 23, 16. He says, Woe to you blind guides, you say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to reform it. Wow. That's kind of like televangelists saying, send your money in and you'll get healed. Seriously, it's like if you attach some sort of wealth and offering and giving to whatever you're doing, God's going to listen to you more. They wanted more gold, let's face it. It suggests who their real God was, wasn't it? <laughs> That's it was right. Gold. It's an odd rule. I mean, it's self-centeredness there. The tithing issue is one on the, the mint and anise and cumin, but this was sort of like, okay, if you really want to get spiritual, get some gold involved. They really were using their positional authority just to leverage their blatant greed. Yeah. And usually when, when we encounter some sort of weird or odd rule, there's something else at the core to try to make life more pleasant or easier for some leader or something or other, or try to get the numbers looking better or, or something, some sort of weirdness at the centre of it. Something deeper at play. If we're a religious leader, we're not really supported by the Holy Spirit. We're not giving the Spirit room to convince people, to lead people. We're saying what they need to do. If we're saying what they need to do, We've removed our trust in the Holy Spirit's role in people's life. That, to me, is one of the core issues around binding heavy burdens on people. We are laying out the path of sanctification, the path of holiness. We are trying to do the Holy Spirit's job. Which goes back to that criticism he made that not only aren't you entering the kingdom, you're inhibiting others from, whereas a kingdom leader is doing everything, evidencing it through their own practices, but also assisting others to enter the kingdom. Now, Matthew is just huge. There's another, there's, a, there's another criticism. I think this is number five. And number five? And what was that one? Matthew uh, 23, 8 says, But you do not be called rabbi, capital R, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, capital F, he is who in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, capital T, the Christ. And so this, this is an emphasis on title. So don't get carried away with these titles. Uh, And religious leaders really play on their position and titles. Senior executive pastor. (laughs) Hey, you haven't got me? (laughs) (laughs) I don't get me started on calling people pastor. I think the the thing is it's important to have some distinctions here. We can look at any of these things, and I think the most predominant problem in the church today is calling people father. And I'm not just talking about the Catholic Church. I'm talking about Pentecostal Protestant churches where we see people higher up in the organisational structure and they adopt parental-type figures. Jesus is in here, your brothers, right? Don't, don't forget this, your brothers, you're not this person's father or mother, you're their brother. It might be the older brother or older sister, and we see that in the scripture, how we should act like that. We can call people father, small f, if they've taken a role in our life that have, have brought us to faith and provided for us and nurtured us. We don't take the role of father because we have a position in an organisational structure that's based on positional authority. The Bible says we should act as fathers at times, and I think very few people do. Very few people bring people to faith, nurture them, provide for them, and see them into adulthood. Yep. Jesus said that you have countless guides but not many fathers was a criticism. 
Actually, Paul said it. He said, this criticism I have against you that although you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. This is not just about, hey, okay, I'm going to call myself a father now and I'm going to act as you're my child. It's back to this same issue of authority. If I've actually fulfilled that role in your life, you'll give me that authority because I have brought you to faith. I have nurtured you and I have provided for you. And I don't get that parental type, but not big F. If it's put on us or if we want to adopt it, one of the buzz terms people call poppers and daddies and honestly wants to make me vomit. It intimate, isn't it? No, we're family members as brothers and sisters. That one irks me as well. I recall you in the church when you were in a pastoral position oh, that someone hello. came in and said, good morning, Pastor Wayne, and you said, good morning, electrician, Paul. <laughs> yeah. I've done that forever, and people, anyone listening to this who knows me way back 30 <laughs> years ago when we planned our first church, I refused to be called pastor. Yeah. One, because I wasn't, that was the weakest of my ascension gifts when I do the surveys, I'm the strongest as teacher than apostle. If you're going to call one person by a title, call everyone by a title. I just did that to irk people because it's very uh, common that people call pastor this or pastor that, even if they're not pastors. That's right. And then you go, well, why pick on one gift to title it up? There's a plain scripture here that says don't do this. Some, <laughs> I'll say, pastors in churches who have not a pastoral bone in their body have pastoral teams to go out and do the pastoral stuff, yet they take the title pastor. The problem comes from both sides. It's, it's an expectation on any person in leadership to have a pastoral gift. This is a bad expectation. If you only want pastors to be in leadership, you've got a problem because we need apostles, prophets, evangelists, and teachers to equip and to mature the body. If you've only got pastors in leadership, you've got a real issue. People in leadership are not pastors. You should not have expectations that they're pastorally motivated. So you can't have both. But as you say, the criticism from Jesus just ditch the titles. Just ditch the titles, absolutely, <laughs> altogether. You can develop strategies around strengths, but you don't need titles. No. Believe it or not, there's another criticism. I think we're really? up to number six. So Steve, where, where are you Matthew, getting these from? Matthew 23, actually. You can probably tell me what it is. Matthew 23, 5 says, Talking to the Pharisees again, they do all their works to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best place at feasts the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplace. Now, these phylacteries, they're a symbol of Jewish faith and tradition. The borders of the garment are their prayer shawls. Uh-huh. The bigger the prayer shawl, the more spiritual you are. Oh, right. Okay. And so interestingly, when you examine the Greek, this is translated from, you know what the literal translation of that is, Steve? Front row. Ouch. Mm-hmm. When I first learned this, I just thought, well, I'm never sitting in the front row again. Of course, as a staff member, as a senior staff member, whether it's in church or in conferences, you get your name on a bit of paper and they get put on a seat in the front row. Or the second row if you're not quite as important as the front row. From that point in time, I did not sit in the front row ever again. In this tradition, the important people sit in the front row and you know, I used to go to pastor's conferences and every seat was labelled in the first number of rows. Where you sat was a measure of your value. Yeah, I know of people who their life mission, that's probably a bit overstating it, but their mission was to move up a row. What can I do to actually get myself invited to the next row, to get to the second row or whatever, to have my name on a seat? And that probably talks about insecurities and all the rest of it. But why are the church leaders feeding on that? If the first row is left vacant and the place is full and people are still coming in, well, then they can go to the first row and sit down bit like the parable of those invited in to be paid to do a day's work in the field and then someone comes in at five o'clock and they get the same pay. That's right. I think this one is just as much unchallenged tradition. It's people, we want to make you feel important, blah, blah, blah. 
However, that's in direct contradiction to another scripture which says that we should give more honour to the less presentable parts rather than greater honour to the parts that we always see. Now, there's one incident where I decided to go the opposite way where I'll come to a very large conference, international speaker, and I was in one of the better terms of nobody, and I walked in late because it was in another city, and in thousands of people I walked up and sat next to the Made to speak in the front row just to, <laughs> just to be a stirrer <laughs> to see what sort of reaction I got. You didn't get us out, I hope. The speaker was fine. It was great. But I could see some other nervous busybodies around. It's unlike me to be a bit of a stirrer, Steve. Unlike you at all. Rather than that criticism of promoting themselves and promoting what they're doing, we should be following what Jesus said in Matthew 6. Absolutely. He says, for example, when you fast, don't let anyone know. Just do it in secret. And you'll get rewarded in secret. And this is really does reflect on the prayer issue. This is about our general aspect. Don't elevate yourself because when you do, you miss the Father's reward. What you're basically saying by elevating yourself is, I don't trust the Father's going to reward me in secret. I don't actually believe what the Scripture is saying. That's what effectively you're doing. There are modern examples of this as well when people are doing a fast or whatever. It's a bit like, how do you know if someone runs marathons? Because I'll tell you. <laughs> right. <laughs> How do you know if someone's fasting because you hear all about it? You know, woe is me. Well, it looks like, well, you're going through this big burden where Jesus is saying, actually, freshen yourself up, wash your face, mm -hmm. and make yourself look happy and joyful, and no one will know you're fasting. The central issue, as we mentioned, is where's your reward coming from? My experience has been the Father's reward is far better than any other reward I'm going to get. Spot on. Let's move on to the seventh criticism we can play We're doing in well. 23. Of course, it starts again with woe to you, or in other okay. words, you idiots, you're in big trouble. What is the seventh one? This one to me is just upsetting and troubling. He says you devour widows' houses. This is the financial thing again, and he says you will receive greater condemnation. We know from Scripture that the positive aspect of religion is to look after widows and orphans in their distress. Yes. The Pharisees, rather, took the widows' resources for as much as they could. They didn't care. The problem is that this is, in effect, still in place, mm -hmm. in places at the church. So in the sense of, it doesn't matter how poor you are, we want you to give as much as you possibly can. It doesn't matter if you're bankrupt. We're just going to keep saying, give, 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 give. Mm -hmm. If you're a widow, it doesn't matter. We'll take everything. Thank you very much. Because you know, you'll be blessed. There's a mistruth in there. There is. And I've had this experience in the church where they were running a building program at the time and it was actively promoted for people to actually, if you have any equity in your home whatsoever, go and get a bigger mortgage and give it to the building program mm. and you will get greater reward. Yep. Look, some people, based on where their self-esteem was, and particularly if they were in hardship circumstances, this whole thing of promoting that if you do some of these things, you will get this back. And that confuses people. And quite often the scripture from Malachi is quoted, Test me on this, open up, give to me, and I'll open up the storehouses of heaven and all the rest of it. And that's taken out of context quite often. The whole issue of finances is not just about giving. It's not the only thing that the Bible says about finances. There's a lot of wisdom involved. And as you said, Steve, there's a lot of internal stuff involved. We want to support the vision of the church. We like the people. We believe in them and so on. But, hey, guys, have a heart. There's widows here. You've got to look out for people who aren't doing these things because God's led them. Basically, if God leads you to do anything with your finances, you do them. Yes. But he's not going to cause a widow to have no food. Finances is more complex in the Bible than just you give and you'll be more prosperous. It's just not that simple, I believe. Well, if it was, that's a surefire way to success. Write that one business book on that. I'm sure many have been written. 
give you way to riches. There's a short scripture in James that says, come now you who say, it's in James chapter 5, we will go here and we will buy and sell and make a profit. Rather you should say, James says, if the Lord wills, we will do this. And so now it's more of instead of just blindly doing everything financially, Lord, I ask, what do you want me to buy and sell? How much do you want me to buy and sell it for? What sort of a profit do you want me to make? You know, there's an assumption hmm. that everything should be the highest profit possible. That's not what that scripture says. It's, Lord, what is your will in this situation? And I don't believe his will is for widows' houses to be devoured, even through giving. This should become an important backstop for us in this promotion of finances in the church. It's a more holistic view. It should be taken, I believe, around financial health. I think that just also highlights the whole web that ties all these things about what true kingdom leaders are versus what true kingdom leaders aren't. And Mm -hmm. even back to the point made earlier about that leader of a religious organisation that's seen to be on a pedestal or, or is more spiritual because he's the leader. It can be that someone who is in a congregation can feel that they're less spiritual, so they're relying on what he says. Right. And so they're trusting it, so they're doing Mm. it, and they might be giving into it thinking, well, it's going to come back. So this is where the influence is negative as opposed to that positive influence or leaven, which is uplifting and helping people to enter the kingdom. Absolutely. And if there's one other thing I'd like to say on this as we finish up, is that part of the practice of church is focusing on finances and giving is to get people before the church to talk about their giving and to say how much they've given and the outcomes. Now, what the scriptures say about this is it says, if you, well, that's automatically taken out of the private space. Yeah. They've already received their reward. So what you're doing to that person is you're cutting them off from the father's reward by getting him to do that. Yes. Where does my priority lay then as a church leader? Am I helping that person to receive a kingdom reward from the Father because they've done it in secret? Or I've shortcut that process. And that very act, I wonder and I think, is that stopping them entering the kingdom by getting them to do that? And I think it is. That is powerful. And most of it is probably driven by a right heart and spirit of saying, well, I want to share how good God has been to us. Yes. But quite often when it's around that, we did this and financially we're blessed, as you say. You've already received your full reward. You've got your reward. No need. The Father's sort of out of the picture now. Like everything in our life, we need to examine our practices in the light of Scripture. We need to relook at it. Otherwise, we just follow these things blindly Mm. and we need to go, actually, I want to experience the Father's reward. I want to keep it private. Thanks. That's a wonderful place to finish off today. Wayne, perhaps you can summarise... This podcast was was about as leaders are we helping others to enter the kingdom. We looked at a variety of things, specific criticisms Jesus had to the Pharisees and contrasted them to the teaching that he taught the disciples. And so the overall question is, are we helping people enter the kingdom? And there's various subtopics under that. And so there's a variety of things underneath that which we've covered about what we major on, are we internally or externally focused as a private or public prayer, are we bringing burdens to people, are we focusing on titles, are we focusing on secretive spirituality, are we looking to God for finances and those sort of issues. And all these things as leaders can either help people enter or shut up the kingdom to them. That's what the Bible says. That's a great way to finish this episode of Protoss, the podcast that helps us all explore more about the kingdom of heaven. I'm Steve. And I'm Wayne, and we trust that we've been assistance to you in your journey of entering the kingdom. We look forward to seeing you next time. Resources referenced in this podcast can be found at kingdomculture.com.au and online courses are available at udemy.com.